You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. This is Real Fiction. My guest today is Anne Enright, who was born in Dublin, where she now lives and works. She has published three collections of stories, one book of nonfiction, and six novels, including The Gathering, which was the Irish Novel of the Year and won the Irish Fiction Award and the 2007 Man Booker Prize. From 2015 to 2018, she was the inaugural laureate for Irish fiction. Her new novel, Actress, was just published in the United States. Anne, thank you so much for spending some time with Real Fiction today. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Well, Actress is your latest novel. It's uh, about a fractious mother-daughter relationship and the daughter in the story, Nora, has to sort of reckon with her mother's celebrity. And we get to go into the glamorous theater world in Ireland and New York in the 50s and 60s. And when I was doing a little research prior to this discussion, I read that many of your readers have been hoping that you would write a theater book. So can you can you share something about what inspired this latest novel, Actress? I didn't know there was anticipation for the theatre aspect of it. I used to work in the theatre way back in the day when I was, I was a student actress, and then I went into the theatre, professional theatre, briefly in Dublin, which is a wonderful theatre town. I was always interested in what, what might be called theatrical dynasties. Hmm. I, I, I love the way theatrical families, because the theatre is slightly less than respectable, how they made their own respectability. It seems to be a kind of romantic place. It's a really tough life. I know people who are in the theatre, and it's no—it's not all a, a one long walk down the red carpet. I was interested in the tawdriness and the hopefulness and the foolishness of the of the art theatrical life, which is close to the hopefulness of the artistic life of the writer. And in fact, the narrator of the book, Nora. becomes a novelist, which I think is a good thing for an actress's daughter to do. Because she's highly observational throughout the story. But you know, it's interesting to hear you say that you did some acting earlier in life, because the backstage scenes are so specific, and vivid. And there was a line that really caught me and it had something to do with um, Nora waiting in the wings, watching her mother from backstage. And the, the line is, it's the best place because the song can't get you there. Yeah, I love the backs of lots of things. There's also a photograph in the book and she turns, she's really interested in the back of it. You know, if you're ever in a bookshop and reading, I, I sometimes they they lead you through the stock rooms or you'll go to the bathroom in the uh, in the places where people never go which is the kind of working mechanism of the bookshop or sometimes even in a department store uh, i remember seeing a mirror open in a department store and behind it were all the kind of utility utilitarian rooms anyway back, this is much more radical of course in the theater where backstage is dark confusing chaotic and kind of wonderful um, with all these abandoned props. I should have put in the stage manager's table, which is a, a really amazing artifact you find backstage where you see, you know, so-and-so's keys have a special place, all the props. So, yes, being slammed onto the fiction of her mother on stage is a very privileged and also quite a lonely place. So I would, took a lot of inspiration from a photograph of Carrie Fisher watching her mother, Debbie Reynolds, on stage. There's this lovely 
It's an amazing photo. She is a young, a little girl with a pudding bowl haircut and a matinee coat and little Mary Jane shoes. And Debbie Reynolds is out on stage in spangles and clothes, lifting her hands up to an unseen audience. Um, And that moment of glamour and loss really captured me because it takes a long time for us as children to see our parents from the outside. And it's an interesting experience. I don't know if you've ever met your mother walking down a city street and then that delay before you realise who it is is a kind of common enough yeah. trope. But this is a moment where the child realises that the beauty and, and belovedness of the mother is now shared by the entire audience. And that somehow makes them feel both lucky and alone. It is such a, a strange thing that Nora has to reckon with. She has the famous mother, and then she's asked questions about, well, what is she like? How does she eat her breakfast? And you have this marvelous opening scene about, well, she's eating her toast like everyone else eats her toast. Yeah, exactly. So later in life, there is a young graduate student who comes into the story and asks about the famous mother, and it prompts Nora to explain the unexplainable about Catherine O'Dell. And I love the way you've set this up because it seems to me that if Nora doesn't take this on herself, if she doesn't really reckon with explaining her mother, who's a very complicated woman, then someone's going to do it on their own behalf. The problem is that Nora doesn't really know where the performance begins and ends. Yeah, well, the graduate student comes and she wants to talk about um, uh, her mother's sexuality because that's what her interest is in gender and, and sexuality. And this this kind of lens is slightly outrageous. Anyway, to Nora, because she's her mother, but also she's kind of poking around to see was she cruel, was she narcissistic, was she the heartless star, was she mommy dearest, was she like Joan Crawford? And, and Nora says she was mine. And that moment of possession and, and reclaiming um, she's not going to let anyone appropriate her mother. And that, that that sense of possession goes through the book. In fact, I'm not entirely sure that Nora ever lets her go or ever lets us see her, though we certainly see the affection between them and the sense of being held or being possessed. There's that protective quality. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, Catherine is on stage and she's on stage pretty much permanently and she also acts out her life as she's living it. She's a theatrical type. Um, and this could be a problem for her daughter. So it's not really a problem for Nora because she doesn't mind the theatre of their relationship because the centre of it is has its own sweetness. There's a scene where they have a picnic in the park and she's a young girl and the park is overseen by houses on four sides. And the mother is there with her plaid blanket and her flask of tea, enjoying being a mother with uh, having a picnic in the park with her daughter. The daughter, meanwhile, is pouring invisible tea for her dolls, playing. They're both playing at having a picnic. But Nora is slightly unsettled because she doesn't need her mother to pretend to be a mother when she's her mother already. She says that would be like double cream. That would be like, that would be twice as nice. And sometimes in all our relationships, we have that formality. We have a slight theater to our relationships. That is, that can be super sweet when it's done right. 
Oh, that's a fascinating scene to bring up as I'm thinking about that relationship. And you mentioned studying the photograph of Carrie Fisher, and it made me think about the scenes where Nora's reconstructing Catherine's life through newsreels, and she comes across that wonderful photo. And she says when you know she looks at it, it sort of looks like the, the there's the big famous actress and the overshadowed child. And I stopped at that line because I didn't really think that Nora felt overshadowed or overlooked. And do I have that right? You have that bang on, Laurie, because she says, but that was not how it was for That's us. Right. Um, they had their own thing going, or she had her own thing going. It's very important for children. They have their own sense of purpose. But they had a relationship that was separate to the enactment, the public enactment of that relationship. And Hollywood stars and actresses of the time were constantly kind of put in domestic situations in gingham aprons and with sweet blonde-haired children, pretending that they were in some way suburban and harmless. And this is a life that Catherine O'Dell yearned for, even as she parodied it with, you know, in, in these similar kinds of photographs. But apart from all of that, they had each other. And, you know, some people say, why was she not more cross with her mother? Because her mother was difficult to herself. Her mother was emotional. Her mother was often absent, uh, working and all that. And and, um, I took my cue from the children of single mothers that I knew who could not hear a word said against their mothers. And it seems that even as Nora is going through life and analyzing her mother, she recognizes that there was some difficulty. But as you said, she still loved her mother. She still loved that connection. She loved the excitement, maybe, of the theater. Yes. I mean, well, you know, the problem with the theater is that so many of the plays are kind of inadequate to life, I suppose, especially for female actors. Um, there are only about four good parts, you know, and three of them are in Shakespeare. <laughs> like, really? Right. It, you know, so, so Catherine goes through a number of kind of secondhand fictions, usually kind of told by men, um, and is the girlfriend or uh, much later on the mother or the grandmother. And she's playing these very kind of inadequate roles. So, I mean, the theatre itself holds its spell and, and the icon that is Catherine O'Dell certainly um, kept Nora in thrall. She was not surrounded by stories that matched her. I wonder how you would look at mother-daughter relationships after working through this novel. You know, I really left with a couple of questions. What is a child's responsibility to uphold a parent's legacy? Well, in, in my humble opinion, a child has no responsibility whatsoever. Um, and Catherine goes into a mental institution towards the end of the book, and uh, Nora continues to be her manager, her minder, her provider, um, as she has done all her life. And that is a kind of sadness when you see it in a child, when they are made the parent too early. And for in, in this book, it happens at the age when Nora's just 13, when her grandfather, Catherine O'Dell's father, dies. And she sees her mother from the outside for the first time as a series of problems to be solved. As you, you were describing that, I'm thinking of the scene where Catherine is in New York City and an agent has kind of taken control of her image. The The hair is dyed orange, her look is shaped, and I guess Nora, her interpretation is that she's enjoying walking on the street, she's enjoying receiving gazes because 
it's a it's a look that hi- allows her to hide in plain sight. So no one knows really who Catherine O'Dell is. She may not know who she is herself. And for me, that was really kind of an exploration of her power and her naivete. So if Catherine can't know herself, then how can her daughter, how can her daughter know who she is? Yeah, I don't know who I am now, I have to tell you. <laughs> mm. I mean, people grow and change and, and it takes quite an effort sometimes to see where you are now. And when I mean, I don't know that I'm, for example, middle-aged. <laughs> That's a great, that would be a great surprise where, where somebody to tell me. But at the age of 57, I'd have to call myself middle-aged. You know, there's a constant negotiation between what the world considers a person to be, you know, or or looks at a person as or imposes as a kind of mask and the mask that the the person imposes on themselves as they meet the world. And there's a scene where Nora, is. she's talking about her mother leaving the house and she's thundering around from room to room. Everything's lost. She can't find anything. And then at the hall door, she turns to the mirror and she puts herself together. That great phrase, as she makes the face. And we all, we all do that. We all have a persona. We all lift our chins or slump over or whatever we do as we walk out into the world. Um, we all have a, a relationship or a problem or a pleasure in the gaze of of others and of the crowd. And now we're in a social media age, and I suppose we do that. I suppose we put our best foot forward, or we put our face on, or we put our filters on, and so maybe we do change who we are from day to day. Well, there's a, it's a constant conversation between ourselves and our image, or might be called our identity, or Catherine um, is talking, she she actually grew up in London, so her claim to be Irish is a little bit uh, false, one way or the other. I have no problem with that, but um, she's recalling a scene from her childhood, and she does the children's voices in Irish accents. And she's been Irish for so long that she has rethought her childhood and put it in an Irish accent. Now, I married an Englishman called Murphy, which is a long story, but he did that one day and realized that he had rewritten his past. And it wasn't, he wasn't lying or making things up. It was a kind of moment of loss for him, really, to think, oh, my God, I've been in Ireland so long. I actually think I'm Irish or think like an Irish person. So we're not the kind of impermeable, uh, essential creatures that sometimes fiction pretends that we are. Things move through us one way or the other. Identities shift. Images certainly change. That's true. Um, I wasn't going to give away the fact that Catherine O'Dell was actually British because um, I wasn't sure if that we were allowed to that's, talk that's about okay. that. But, okay. um, but I'm glad. Nora you... calls her mother a great fake, and people <laughs> have been asking me, you know, like that's, uh, you know, a really bad thing. But it, it, she also means she was a glorious kind of fake. Well, know? she was she was a glorious fake and became an iconic Irish celebrity. She was able, yeah. as you said, to do to do very specific Irish accents. And then she had a, she did a butter commercial, which had a long lasting effect. So I, she was convincing. Yes, she was also artful um, because that persona of the, what you said, orange hair, but actually she was dyed ginger. Ginger hair. <laughs> Pardon me. Yes, ginger. And it changes to Auburn um, at one stage. But that that figure of, of the Irish woman with the flaming red hair, I mean, Maureen O'Hara did it and, uh, uh, and she did it in Hollywood as well. 
uh, but and the plaid shawl and and all the rest of it. That's as manufactured as it as it might be. It, I'm sure it, it's based on some reality, but when things become iconic, they also become not entirely authentic. You could argue this one way or the other. I I'm not fussed about authenticity because I make things up all the time and being fake is part of the pleasure of my day. Well, then this is a good time for me to ask you what is probably a kind of craft question, because one of the things that happens in the book is that the characters are, they go to the edge, they go to the shadows, whether they're in the theater or they're standing at the edge of the water or at the edge of a park, and they're making observations. So I was hope I'm hoping. Oh, and the other element to that was that Nora sort of recalled Catherine's attraction to violence at the time when the IRA was at its height. And it sort of repulsed her because, well, my mother is just attracted this, to this for the sake of drama rather than the political. But you like to observe people and characters by where they look. How do you how do you like to observe and create these characters? Well, when I say I don't mind people being fake or authentic, I do think that there's a big difference between the fantasies we project onto reality um, and our actions. And I have a very, an almost moral idea that actions are where it's at. It's not what you think, it's what you do. And Catherine's tragic mistake in thinking that Irish nationalism um, should involve killing people is, as the IRA were doing, bombing and shooting in, in the north of Ireland and in London and, and it elsewhere. That's the most serious mistake you can make with a fantasy, mm. um, is to damage the, the stuff of another human being. Um, and there's lots of other ways you can damage human beings, but this is at, at its most frank, really, and its most basic. So I was really interested in the difference between fantasy and reality. I'm really delighted and, and a little bit uh, confused about your seeing about all these edges in the book, because I somebody else said that to me, and they have a big theory about it, and I'm not entirely sure why I do that. I think I may be interested in boundaries and how we assert or dissolve the boundaries between people um, or how we find our own edges some way or the other. And maybe I picked up on it because there was such a striking scene when um, Catherine is walking through the streets of New York City. It's late at night. She's with the the gentleman the at the hotel, the bellhop at the hotel, yeah. and they're walking toward the water. And then I think they they maybe make their way past Central Park. And there's a very specific statement about edges and shadows. And I thought, yeah. well, that's almost quite similar to the way Nora would watch her mother from from the end. from the wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but well observed. Uh, of, I do love edges. Maybe it's because I grew up on an island. And Manhattan is an island, so she's looking for the edges of the island. Oh, maybe, maybe that is it. Well, you mentioned that, that Catherine had a kind of uh, complex moral relationship with the IRA, and that made me think about the fact that there's another really Irish element to this novel, and that is Catholicism. Oh, yeah. And I loved the connection between the priest character named Father Des and Catherine O'Dell. And he said... Uh, at one point in the book, that her performance could make the audience believe in God. I would like to know how you develop this connection between these two characters and how you might view the profession of acting 
and the priesthood? Well, that is a fantastic question. <laughs> uh, there is a funeral. In, in the, when, when her father dies, she says it's like a bad matinee with nobody in the audience and every, all the action up on stage because it, there's monsignors and altar boys swinging the incense and all uh, quite a high mass for her father's funeral. And she sees it purely as theatre. I, I think what you've identified is an interest in the relationship between ritual and transcendence. And the, what happens on stage is ritualized. It's repeatable, um, it's observed, and and it provokes feelings of transcendence in the audience. So I think you've hit something there. Um, that That is the practice of religion and the communal or group or crowd practice of religion, as opposed to what, what might be called, you know, people's inner spirituality. But, you know, it kind of, it, it, how we look at, when we join in a fiction, whether looking at it on the screen or on the stage, something something dissolves in us. We join the fiction. We are, we empathize so much. It's quite a, quite a primitive state or, or a strange thing that happens there. Um, as we pour ourselves into the, the fictional lives of others. It happens when you're reading a book too, I suppose. So transcendence, beauty, all of these things, and uh, that all kind of fits in with how idealized Catherine is as a mother figure as well as uh, as an, an iconic actress. Oh, absolutely. And I've always, you know, I've always heard the term, I've been called to the priesthood. And you have some references to Catherine O'Dell feeling that the stage... Call, I don't I think it was the stage called to her, okay. pulled to her. So I, I really saw a powerful connection between what you just articulated, and I don't think I've seen it, such a direct connection in a novel like that before. So. Right. Well, I didn't, I didn't really notice it until you asked me about it, Laurie. So, so thanks. Now I have something I, I can talk about. I think I asked you um, this a bit ago, but I want to come at it from a slightly different angle. At the end of the story, when Catherine is unraveling there's there's a kind of madness this is she's had some madness throughout the story but she's has unraveled and it's difficult to know where their love and manipulation begins between mother and daughter and again i kept thinking what is the child's responsibility in caring for this mother she's complicated maybe manipulative is too strong of a word but she's ill so what is the balance between duty and self preservation in these difficult moments? She doesn't feel it as a threat to her sense of self, the daughter. In, in that, she's very lucky, uh, or Catherine's very lucky, in that she looks out her more or less willingly. I suppose people are manipulative when they're weak, and Catherine is considerably weakened by life and by events, some of them which is precipitated herself. Yeah. But it's it's a good question. I mean, uh, uh, Nora is a good daughter. She doesn't push against it all. She does say that herself and her husband live like orphans until her mother died, which is a kind of paradox. Hmm. Couldn't really, she couldn't really grow up, or she couldn't, you know, she 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 couldn't make her own life until her mother's life was over. It was a, it was a maybe a kind of arrested development in a way. Or premature development. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, I can see that. Anyway, something something not entirely great for her. But but she is a great. She's actually the strange thing is that she's a survivor. She's a little bit like Constance in the Green Road, the book before that. And Constance looks after everyone, and she's the happiest in the book because she's the one who's who is 
least selfish. But it's not a huge theme at Nora, but Nora actually finds and makes an autonomous life separate from her mother. And she does it She does it in the middle of the book. She starts taking over the book and her own life starts taking over the book. Um, and she she finds her own way. And she does it by doing the opposite of her mother. <laughs> so she defines herself in opposition to Catherine and all her foibles and her glories. And so she has a specifically different life. She has a different attitude to sex and love and responsibility and reality. And she has a very deliberately normal life as her mother's life was very rackety and, and glamorous, you know. It is, as you said, the opposite. Catherine was on stage. Her life was in front of people. And Nora is a novelist. She writes quietly. She's yeah. an introverted, quiet creator. Yeah. It's a, two different ways of creating. Well, as I mentioned um, in the introduction you now have a global literary platform. How do you manage writing with the pressure of all of your awards and <laughs> being I- Irish fiction laureate? How how do you balance those two things? I do a bit of nonfiction, and that manages the world a little bit. You know, uh, if I'm ever political, I'm political in my nonfiction. So if I'm writing about um, gender or, or feminist issues or whatever, then in my creative work, I I managed to forget all that completely. I just shut the door. It's really... You just shut the door. You just shut the door. Um, I mean, maybe I was trained into it by having children. Because <laughs> I mean, you can, if you can create while all of that is going on, when those creatures are small, then there's no... There's, well, it's not entirely easy, but you can manage... You can get through other pressures and external pressures. Yeah, creating through chaos, truly. Yeah, sitting in the middle of chaos, but but I, I it has it has you know I mean the Booker Prize is a huge prize that I won in in the UK and Ireland at least it was really uh, alarming because I had been previously more or less unknown you know so um, that took some accommodation and it took me a while to you know to push the door closed on all of that but the really funny thing is that when I'm working it is every everything else goes away. And that's why I love it. Well, and hopefully while you're on tour, I'm, I mentioned in the introduction you were on tour in the United States, and your new novel, Actress, has just been published by W.W. Norton and Company. And before I let you go, um, I'll mention that you teach writing when you're not writing. And what is the best piece of writing advice you've ever received? Yeah, no, I teach in UCD and uh, the postgraduates, um, and, and uh, they really don't want to hear my advice. They want your large, wonderful. <laughs> I don't believe you for a minute. <laughs> inspiration. I mean, my advice is really dull. I mean, it's like it's chip away. That's what I say, chip away. Is there an Irish author that you feel deserves a wider readership? There's a brace of younger women writers who are working today who are terrific. People like Anna Burns, Ema McBride and Sally Rooney. Like some of those have, I do have a, a great audience of global success. But if I were to recommend a, a writer from the tradition, I would recommend Flann O'Brien. Okay. And the third policeman at Swim Two Birds. He was a kind of People thought he wasn't as good as Joyce, but he's a huge, huge, much funnier and more accessible. Uh, those are terrific books. That's a great suggestion. 
Well, my guest today is Anne Enright. Her novel, Actress, was recently published in the United States by W.W. W. Norton and Company. And thank you so much for joining the program today. Thanks, Laurie, for those great questions. 